All right, it is the week of August 1st, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm yours, Patrick Ogier, and today we're going to talk about the UFC apparently being the biggest obstacle to a Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather boxing rematch. Is it good business or bad business for the UFC? We're going to examine it specifically from that lens and take a look as to why the promotion may feel differently about the fight now than they did even just a couple of years ago. Then we're going to talk PFL. Can they land some of these major MMA free agents that are going to hit the market? We're going to talk about the resources they have to possibly sign some of these guys and girls, as well as whether or not they can beat out some of the competition, because there's going to be offers, lots of offers for the people we're talking about. Then we're going to do a quick hit section about Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley pay-per-view buys, uh, Daniel Cormier payout information, and one championships latest signing. And then last but not least, what I think is the most important segment of today's podcast is we are going to talk about an X factor in fighter negotiations and the MMA business in general, which is prestige. A couple of things have come to light over the past week and a half or so that have highlighted this. I think it's time we did an in-depth look about how prestige factors into fighter negotiations and contracts. So with that in mind, got timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, first up, we're going to do a segment we haven't done for a while called Good Business or Bad Business. And this is sometimes good deal or bad deal. It's technically two separate things, but I haven't really settled on a name if we're going to just have one segment or not. Let me know in the comments or through DMs or what have you, should we call the segment good business versus bad business? Should we call it good deal, bad deal? Should it be two separate segments, depending on if we're talking about a deal versus just general business practice? Let me know all of your thoughts on that most popular answer wins. Uh, with that out of the way, according to a couple of reports, the UFC is apparently the biggest roadblock to getting the Connor versus Floyd boxing rematch done. Uh, I believe you have a quote from Steven Espinoza saying as much. A couple of reports saying, yep, they don't want to do the fight. Dana White doesn't want to talk about it, didn't want to talk about it on the Jim Rome show, uh, wants Connor to get back in the MMA cage, all of that stuff. This is somewhat surprising and somewhat not, right? If you go back to the first fight, Dana was obviously very hyped for it. It was peak McGregor mania. Um, you know, McGregor had won both the 145 and 155 pound titles, had relinquished them through inactivity, not through any loss at the time. Mayweather was coming out of retirement for the first time, I believe, or maybe second. Um, I believe Pac Pacquiao was an exhibition, but coming out of retirement first first time in a while. To do this fight, you had the world tour. It was a huge ordeal. Um, did bonkers box office numbers. Was a massive event. One of the biggest in decades in terms of just commercial success. And one would think that the UFC wants to do that again, right? They obviously got a big cut of the money that Connor got. Um, Floyd got his purse. Connor, I believe, got a hundred million or something like that. Floyd got two hundred. Um, so one could assume that maybe Connor 
was originally doing 200 and UFC took, I believe it was 25 or um, 50%. I don't exactly remember, but either way, UFC got paid quite a bit to do that. Yes, they had to help co-promote. Yes, they had to do a bunch of stuff, but I mean, they got paid well for that. And so one would think, well, hey, here's a bunch of extra money. Let's go ahead and do this. Why not? Right? And they're just shutting it down. Just pretty much everything from a PR perspective and the kind of business eye test is UFC does not want to do this fight. It's not going to happen. Endeavor saying no. Dana saying no. UFC saying no. And the question really becomes, is that a good business move or a bad business move? And one very key tidbit here that I think we have to remember, and this is something that the illustrious John Nash, I'm just using random adjectives for him at this point, uh, I brought up on Twitter is Endeavor is in a very different, and UFC are in a very different financial situation than they were five, six years ago, right? When they had basically just bought the promotion, they were kicking the tires, figuring out how they were going to cut costs. They had a ton of debt, all of this stuff, but they didn't have the ESPN deal. The ESPN deal is a game changer, as we've talked about here in so many ways, right? You go from that wild roller coaster, variable revenue to pretty stable revenue growth with then adding and layering things on top of it with sponsorships, uh, partnerships, all that fun stuff. Extra media rights deals in other countries. You know how it goes. And thus, part of what happens when you go from that roller coaster of, hey, we need money, we need it now, and we're not quite sure when we're going to get our next big payday, so we need to take this opportunity, is you go from that mindset to, okay, we've got our base, right? We know we're going to make pretty much this amount of money no matter what. As long as we can keep costs down to this level, we know we're guaranteed X amount of profit. And you start looking at different things. Money then becoming a, I don't want to say a background item. Um, it's a priority still, but it, it drops on the priority list. And what rises above money becomes really the strategy and direction of the C-suite. If they're talking about innovation, if they're talking about new products, new services, that really is the time where creativity and strategic leadership takes over in my opinion, is when you've got when you've got money, when you're flush with cash, you get creative. It's what almost every business I've worked for or done work for, I've seen happen, right? If you're trying to hit your numbers, if you're struggling or you're worried about hitting your numbers, that cash and revenue is king. Everything else falls to the wayside. It's where can we get more money? Can we borrow it? Can we make certain sales? And that becomes your sales pipeline and your selling becomes your main focus. But if you are rolling in dough, whether you're a startup or a big corporation that has a bunch of money guaranteed and things are, you know, economic conditions are just good for you. 
you will see companies start to take risks, start to experiment, start to do things. But another piece that almost always rises up quite a bit at that point is protecting the brand, right? When you've got these long-term partnerships or these stable revenue companies with money just coming in at a set pace, a mindset shift often happens where we have that because of X deals or X customers or what have you. And the biggest threat, right? If you're doing a SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, the biggest threat by far is if our brand image gets tarnished and that could cause disruption either within the current deal or a future deal that we'll need. It's a very different mindset when you go from, hey, we've got to find a thousand different people to buy our product and get, you know, everybody sold on this and and blah, 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 versus, hey, we've got one major partner here that as long as we keep them happy, we're golden. And yeah, we can make money other ways. We can do other creative things. Great, blah, blah, blah. But as long as they stay happy, we are set. I mean, set. We are in the black. And what can rock that boat is, well, here's the brand and the promises and the level of service and product that we delivered when we first got the deal. And that's what we sold them on. And that's what we're delivering now. If anything messes up those factors, including the image that we sold them, that's a problem. And so you might be saying, Patrick, all right, that's great. What does this have to do with Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather? Well, if Conor goes out there, right, and loses to Floyd again, especially after losing you know, to Poirier a couple times and he loses badly. Conor McGregor is an ambassador of the sport in many ways. And he is also a big face of the UFC. He is not all over everything like he once was. He's not, you know, in-your-face camera all the time. Obviously, he's fighting far less. He's doing his own thing. And when he's away from the octagon, he's kind of not followed as much. I don't want to say not followed at all by any means, but it's definitely, you know, over the dip of McGregor mania, right? Nevertheless, he is still seen as this person who's able to bring casual viewers to the sport and represents the UFC brand. And yes, fighters lose, that happens, but it's he's an important piece to what the UFC sells to sponsorships, uh, to potential partners, well, which is sponsorships, but to, to potential, you know, any potential partner, uh, 
media rights deals, right? All that stuff. McGregor is a big piece there. And I would not be shocked at all if the UFC is saying in some of these deals, like, hey, Connor's going to come back and you're going to see your, you know, your viewership go, whoa, crazy high to both ESPN to, you know, some of these other companies, BT Sport, um, would be very interesting to see the data on new subscribers to some of these services post a McGregor fight, right? Because he is still the biggest draw in the sport easily and most consistently. Unless his last loss really knocked him down a peg. But as far as we know, he is the biggest draw in the sport by far. If he goes out and loses to... Mayweather, yes, the UFC will get some money and Endeavor will be able to pay some debt off. And oh, that's great. But if he gets beat soundly by Mayweather, which I mean, he kind of was the first time, then that's just showing, well, yeah, I mean, McGregor's not as good as he used to be. And oh, he still couldn't get past Floyd, right? He said he was training boxing and all this stuff when he was fighting Poirier and he still can't get past Floyd. Well, I guess, you know, boxing is you know, better in a way. Now, of course, if I utter that sentence, you might be looking at me like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, us diehards gladly know and clearly know. Clearly is the word, not gladly. Um, that, that it's a completely different sport, right? And if you are a professional boxer and you're at the top of your division, no MMA fighter is going to be able to hang with you almost certainly whereas vice versa we've seen many a boxer try and step into the mma cage and just get trounced by some of the basic wrestling and jujitsu that most mma fighters possess most recent example of that is clarissa shields in the pfl right i have no doubt that if she's fighting pure kickboxers and even then with leg kicks i mean i think if you're fighting pure kickboxers clarissa shields is knocking everybody out that's fine she struggled against not that great opponents with basic wrestling and jujitsu and it's it's hard it's not her fault right it's hard to, to get up to speed on that stuff it is what it is um it, it's it's part of the trade-off there's only so much time and if you're doing pure boxing, you're not going to be able to just pick up the years of wrestling and jujitsu that come with it. But the casual fans don't necessarily know that, right? The people that watch one or two boxing fights a year or watch one or two MMA fights a year might not truly get that concept. And again, it's those dollars and that type of fan that is the most valuable to both boxing and MMA. And we've talked about on this show about how boxing is a substitution. Other combat sports, right, is a substitution to MMA. And it's got kind of this popular resurgence thanks to people like Jake Paul and Logan Paul and, you know, love him or hate him. He's definitely brought a big spotlight back to boxing. And Floyd coming out and doing some of, you know, the fights that he's doing in the exhibition, right? It's it's certainly put a new kind of highlight 
on to boxing we haven't seen in some time. I mean, it also helps you've got, you know, Fury doing his thing. And then you've got, um, you know, Ryan Garcia. You've got so many good boxers right now kind of coming up. It makes sense. But if you are Endeavor or the, the UFC, the last thing you want to do is have McGregor go out there, get beat soundly by Floyd, and then essentially have to admit, well, yeah, it wasn't just a one-off fluke where, oh, McGregor won some rounds and then he lost to Floyd, right? The first one. Yeah, I mean, we all, anybody that's watched Floyd shouldn't have been surprised at how that went. But he loses again, it kind of puts the stamp on it. As we've seen many a time in MMA, right? You lose to the same guy twice, well, you're probably not getting that third shot. Or if you are, doesn't necessarily go your way. A la Max Holloway, Volkanovski. That type of perception that McGregor wasn't good enough to get past Mayweather and couldn't hang with Mayweather, even though as a more hardcore fan or people that even semi-hardcore who know more about the sport, you might think, well, yeah, that makes sense. The casual fan does not see that and that will hurt the brand. And that's a huge part of this. It's all about protecting the brand. They've got the money now. Endeavor and the UFC have the money now. Now it's about protecting the brand image. And McGregor is part of the brand. He's a huge part of the brand still. And until he completely falls off, I don't think they're going to entertain this fight. I think they want him back in the octagon to help with, again, some of the media rights deals they've made with some of the sponsorships they've probably talked about. They've, I'm sure his name was thrown around as like, well, yeah, what if Conor McGregor came out wearing crypto.com gear, right? Uh, what if Conor McGregor came out wearing, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. You know how it is. He is still the biggest star in the sport. Him losing again in boxing. If you do just a basic cost-benefit analysis here, yeah, sure. Wow, we get, a, you know, a bunch of money. Let's say they get a hundred. Let's say they get a hundred million dollars to let Connor buy. That's awesome. It's still what a seventh of or eighth of the ESPN deal. It's not like wow, this is going to fund a bunch of stuff and we're going to do expansions all this stuff. Like, well, no, it would it would help pay off some debt. You could help do some ideas you've got brewing, but the risk if he gets beat, you know, badly, or even just beat pretty clearly uh, the risk that it could tarnish your image isn't that great. And then if McGregor comes back after that in the cage and suddenly the numbers aren't as big as they were right compared to when he fought Poirier, cause that would have been his third loss in a row. Well, then maybe that is having some of these media rights guys saying, well, all right, we'll give you about as much money as we did last time. But you know that whole 100% re-up that you've been doing with all these other little guys? I don't know if ESPN's going to go for that. And it it, it isn't great. If, you're, if your main star gets hurt, image-wise, that's not a good time at all. So I think that's why they are stepping in like this, and I think it's a good business deal for them. That money is not nearly as valuable as it used to be when they first made 
the original McGregor Mayweather match. Now with money kind of flush, the, the benefits aren't there. The risks outweigh the benefits here. That's my opinion. Let me know your thoughts on it. And, and who knows if we'll see it actually come to fruition and they arrange a deal, but I, I think they won't. I think the UFC will block it as long as they have Connor's contract. All right, next up, we're going to talk about the PFL and whether or not they can actually land some of these big free agents coming up. So Peter Murray went on the MMA hour with Ariel Hawani and Ariel asked him about Nate Diaz's impending free agency. And Maria said there would be interest from the PFL and they have capital that they could use to compete in terms of an offer that they, they give Diaz. Now, first off, they do have the money, right? If you look at some of the payouts that we've seen from commissions on PFL, we've seen Anthony Pettis, Rory McDonald make very good money. We know Kayla Harrison is making, I think it's around a million a fight, something like that. Diaz would easily be the highest male fighter under PFL contract if he signed with them. I have no doubt about that. Not sure how he would do in the tournament, to be honest, right? I mean, if you look at his wins and losses, uh, it's much more about you know his swagger, his perception since beating McGregor, having that star power transfer. But he would definitely bring eyeballs to the promotion. And that's really what that payment would be for, right? You'd have a ton of semi-casual and casual fans probably be like, oh, Diaz is fighting in a different promotion. Oh, it's the PFL, a thing that does a tournament. Sure. I'm sure you would get some of the more famous backers to do conversations or interviews and promos, right? With Diaz. Um, I'm sure you'd again have, some more Kevin Hart with Khalifa. Um, you'd have a lot of guys, I think, stepping up to do promos with Diaz and to kind of help shine a light on, hey, the PFL just acquired this big free name, right? And even if those initial viewers don't convert like the PFL hopes, they're still in the phase of just trying to get people to watch the product just getting the product in front of enough eyeballs. This would very much help accomplish that first step if they sign Diaz. Um, you've also got Francis Ngannou, right, who Murray has also indicated that he'd like to make an offer for that. Again, not as big in drawing the casual viewers. It would st- it would definitely bring over a lot of hardcore and semi-hardcore fans or, or of the UFC, rather, right? The... The UFC fans, as I like to call it. Uh, it would certainly bring over a fair amount of them just out of curiosity of anything else, but it's not the same level as Diaz. Diaz has true crossover pull and potential. So I think that either would be a huge signing for the PFL and would be a major win. They have the money to sign these guys uh, based on the funding that they've raised based on some of the sponsorships they've gotten together with more established name brands, right? They now have some money to still in the red, I'm assuming very much assuming, but pretty sure they're still in the red, but they are in that rapid growth expansion phase, racking up debt, 
to prove investors, hey, look, look at everything we're accomplishing here. That we're going to turn the corner. It's going to be worth it. You know, let's let's do this. And they are in a good spot with going from, I believe, 18 events to 30, like Marie mentioned, and having the capital and timing to sign some of these big guys. So they've got the resources. I'm sure they can make a pitch, right? Like, hey, especially with Nganu and Diaz, who have both been scorned by the UFC's matchmaking policies and politicking. Like, hey, look, there's none of that. It's a tournament format. Come sign. It's it's all set in stone. We can't screw you over. We can't do this. You just work your way up the ladder. Here you go. And it's probably easy money for them, too, if you think about it, right? Um, Diaz, a little bit less just because you don't know what he's going to look like in there. Um, right? He did beat Pettis pretty soundly, so I think he would probably beat him and Rory and some other guys. But, I, you know, I don't know what he would look like in the actual tournament, if he would win or not. Um, and Ganu would definitely, almost certainly breeze through everybody, I would imagine. Uh, I don't see many competitors for Nganu. So probably for both men, definitely Nganu. Nate depends on how the contract would be structured, but especially since he'd almost certainly be making at least a mill of fight. Um, you know, probably be pretty easy money for them. So what are the odds that they'll sign with BFL? And the thing is, I think, honestly, the odds are still pretty low. Simply because boxing is so much more lucrative, right? Boxing has things in place, and, and you have bigger names in boxing already talking to these guys, right? Tyson Fury had Francis Ngannou in the ring and talked about fighting him. Ngannou versus Fury would be Ngannou's biggest payday easily. Easily. And would blow anything he's made in the UFC out of the water and anything the PFL could offer him. We've talked about that before. Diaz, I assume, would probably fight Jake Paul, right? I mean, that's... That's a mega fight right there. That gives Jake Paul everything he needs to, you know, one up his last outings. And as we'll talk about here in the quick hits, I mean, his last pay-per-view didn't do that badly, folks. So I would imagine a Paul Diaz pay-per-view does very well. And that's going to get Nate Diaz way more money than he ever made in the UFC. And Diaz is pretty open about how he'd rather stand and strike rather than do a lot of jujitsu stuff, right? He doesn't usually go for takedowns. Go, he does, especially in his you know early career. He did a fair amount of jujitsu, jujitsu, and he's you know he's submitted people for sure, but that's not his style. He likes to stand there and throw. In boxing, that's all you can do. And. Both of these guys also, Nganu and Diaz, Nganu less so, but Diaz especially has talked about, you know, he doesn't like fighting, right? The Diaz brothers are notorious for being like, we don't really like fighting. That's not what we like to do. We do it because it gives us money, because it's it's what we do for a living. But they are not like, oh, I love to go and fight people. 
That's not their thing. Diaz fighting Jake Paul probably sets him financially for life easily, and he would, I would assume, never have to fight again. Right? That's very hard to look at. And, and I mean, yes, some people might say, well, he might never have had to fight again and come back when he uh, came back for the Pettis fight. Well, technically, but this would give Diaz, I would imagine, just a huge amount of money to spend and do whatever he wants with. And, you know, so uh, I mean, I think he could live a pretty lavish lifestyle and still never need money. Nganu has talked about wanting to be the best, wants to go in there and do boxing. Um, but he was open to the idea of negotiating with the UFC. I think there's a little bit more to it than just pure monetary reasons. But still, you would imagine he at least does boxing first, right? He doesn't, because with boxing, you also don't have to sign for X amount of fights and all of this, blah, blah, blah. Not a lot of time you don't have to do that. Um, it can be more lucrative if you do, but, it, you know, uh, there's definitely options there for Ngannou. So, he could just sign a one-off boxing match and then decide, okay, now I'm going to go to the PFL or back to the UFC or what have you could easily do that. And there's not much that would be stopping him. So I think it's, I think it's near impossible for the PFL to get Nganu right now, unless they signed Nganu and, that allows him to box wherever he wants. And I would imagine he would sign, go box, and then come back to the VFL. But I don't know about that. Um, and Diaz, yeah, I, I just don't see it. I, I don't know what overture you could make to Nate Diaz to say, hey, come find this tournament format. It's going to be better than you boxing Jake Paul or whoever and making five, ten times, however many times amount of money that you would make doing that. So I think the motivations are there right now for those guys that I, I don't see the PFL competing um, against boxing. I feel like they are one of the best in the MMA space, right? I think the UFC will still kind of low ball them. Um, and I'm not sure Bellator can really match what PFL is doing. You'd have to, I mean, they're backed by, the big Viacom CBS, but I'm not sure they would get the sign off to sign some of these guys. So it's kind of hard to say, especially with how marketing and matchmaking has gone in Bellator. Uh, one championship would also be in the running technically, but I don't think they have quite as much capital and their financials are seemingly in far worse shape. We don't know PFL's financials, but it would be safe to assume. So hard to say on all this. Um, but end of the day, no, I don't think they land in the PFL. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know if you think one of, or both of them are going to end up in the PFL or not. If not, where do you think they'll go? Do you think they'll go boxing? Will they go one championship? Uh, Bellator back to the UFC, you know, let me know your thoughts on this. Cause two big free agents, both coming up very soon here. Going to be interesting. Going to be interesting to see where they go. All right. Next up is our quick hit section. Going to be very quick today because my voice is kind of getting raspy for whatever reason. And I want to make sure I have enough time and energy to talk about the prestige portion. So quick hits. We've got Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley buys. Apparently, according to Ariel Hawani on the MMA Hour as well, um, 
We don't have an exact number for Paul versus Woodley two pay-per-view buys, but Hawani stated they were under 500K and above 200K. So that's a good that's a good night at the office, honestly, for a boxing pay-per-view. Um, be very curious to see what the actual number was. Maybe it will come out eventually, but uh, that's a lot better than I think people thought Woodley versus Paul two did. So um, again, just speaks to that substitution power and, and Jake Paul's drawing power. And yeah, we'll see what the future holds, but there's a lot of potential there in terms of Paul becoming a bigger name in boxing and getting more eyes on boxing, especially people that wouldn't normally watch casual viewers. He's a casual draw folks. Um, Daniel Cormier. You know, I'm going to save that one. Uh, One championship has signed Roberto Soldic. Man, I think I, I hope I'm getting his name right. Um, I know I'm getting just destroyed. Uh, I know, sometimes you don't say it, but I know there are a couple of you that regularly listen that are, are laughing their butts off right now with how bad I pronounce names. Yeah, Roberto Soldic is what I'm calling him. Um, KSW standout, right? Double champ KSW. He has officially signed with one championship, which is a very big get for one. Um, big name. We've seen a lot of KSW guys go to the UFC lately for one to get him um, and have him, you know, potentially challenge uh, Renner de Ritter uh, and, and just that whole division. Um, Hong song too, right? Like there's some good matchups there and it adds some much needed depth to one's roster. So a very nice get by one championship, especially with their new deal and their expansion. So Kind of out of left field. A lot of people didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming, but it's great news for one uh, and, a, and a big name. Lastly, uh, Jack Slack. I, I had retweeted this as well, this graphic, but Jack Slack also, I believe, either made the original graphic or retweeted it to make it big enough um, where it has the same graphic you see all the time with fighter payouts, and they're always BS, right? And given the UFC London payouts... Uh, it had patties like 700 K, uh, has so-and-so this much, this much. And then at the bottom, like these are made up. They're always false. Something like that. Um, might show up on the screen. If you're watching YouTube, if John finds it, if not John, there's no pressure there, (laughs) but Daniel Cormier on his show, DC and RC mentioned that Patty Pimblett made $700,000, obviously just falling for that bait hook, line and signal. Man, I I have stood on this podium, I don't know how long, talking about how these fake payouts are ridiculous and the people blindly believing them are saying like, well, that's about close to what it makes. No, no, it's not. It's never anywhere near that close. You guys were saying that when you saw the Patty Pimblett one for 500K and then Patty went on record saying, no, I made like 12 and 12. Don't believe that BS. It's ridiculous. The guys that put it out there are garbage, just straight garbage. Um, for DC to fall for that, man, you are a official ambassador for the sport. You have a job where you're supposed to do your research on this. Get it together, man. Just terrible, terrible work by Cormier. Just get it, get it together, man. Just read, read more than the first thing you see. That just goes for everybody too. Cause in this day and age, uh, I'm going to sound like a super old man here, but this day and age, you, you 
clicking on stuff, you see a headline, you're like, oh, no, no, read. You've got to read it all. I know it, I know it takes an extra minute or two, maybe even three minutes of your time to read the whole thing or to double check a source. And that's, man, that's so rough. But God, I, I just can't. I can't with this stuff. Terrible work, Daniel Cormier. You get an F for your job, my opinion. Uh, those were quick hits. Let me know if I missed anything. Uh, but yeah, those those are the quick hits for this week. All right, last thing I want to talk about today is prestige and how it affects fighter negotiations, fighter contracts, all that fun stuff. So when I say prestige, what do I mean? Talking about public perception, uh, fame, an accolade, that type of thing that elicits pride in a person, right? Whether it be school, right? Uh, you've got in the U.S. Harvard, uh, Yale, right? Or MIT, some of the most prestigious colleges you can go to. Um, whether it be work, where if you are in the tech industry, well, up until not that long ago, Facebook was pretty prestigious. Uh, Apple, um, you know, Microsoft is one of the biggest ones where uh, consulting, you know, what I do to an extent, um, you've got the big four, right? The big four consulting firms. You've got Bain, uh, McKinsey, BCG. And I mean, and the fourth one, you know, those are the three main ones, but you've got Ernest and Young too. You've got, then it kind of, everybody fights over the fourth one in my opinion but either way you've got these institutions that are known for high quality product or service or that yield you know great education or what have you and people will often often i've seen people turn down better money better benefits um better positions right director level versus mid-manager or lower because they want that prestige on their resume um, or school, right? I mean, if you think about school itself, I've seen people turn down full ride scholarships to very good universities, like great universities. And instead one, one friend in particular turned down a full ride to a very good school Um well-known, especially for what she was looking to go into, what was ranked, I believe, in the top 10 in the nation, uh, would have had a full ride, everything paid for, all this stuff, and she turned it down instead to go to Harvard. And big reason is because it's Harvard, right? That's what prestige can do. That's the power of prestige, this public perception. Now, as someone that is in the consulting world, let me tell you this. In a lot of the sectors I've worked in, um, and I've worked for some big name companies, right? Um, I've worked for some what you consider prestigious institutions in their industry. Some in consulting capacity, some as, you know, straight up employee. And in general, <laughs> uh, when you get to these places, it's, it's kind of eye-opening in the sense that it's not all that's cracked up to be, at least in my experience. Um, I have had some good experiences at big name 
prestigious places, but not so much that I would often say, oh, I'd never take a job anywhere else but here. I mean, I wouldn't take it at some low-level firm or some, I wouldn't work with a low-level client here. I mean, af- not after working with these big guys, right? And it's a little bit different in work, and especially what I do, because having that on your resume is a big boost to help you, you know, then sell to some of the smaller companies or other companies in that area. But it's still one of those things where prestige carries such a low, uh, powerful thing with certain people. It's kind of crazy. Um, and when you look at things objectively, right, the actual work, the pay, the benefits, the titles objectively, if you take prestige out of it, I know a lot of people that would be working across a lot of different places. That's just the honest truth. And yes, it's anecdotal coming from me, but I, I think you'd find it's a very common anecdote. Now I, I say all this to preface that MMA fighters and the MMA industry is no exception to this type of thinking, to this type of, you know, being sucked in by prestige. The UFC has done a fantastic job and it's been one of their main goals that they have not been shy about sharing. They want to be the face of MMA and they've done it. They've succeeded, right? You have people who say you train UFC or they're a UFC fighter and they're really not. They're an MMA fighter, but like, oh yeah, that guy's a UFC fighter. Like, no, that guy's a regional dude that's trying to make it into the UFC or to any type of professional organization, but layman people just see UFC. They don't see Bellator. They don't see PFL one, any of those places. It's almost always, Oh, UFC. The UFC has succeeded. Promotion has succeeded in becoming the face of the, of an entire industry. And is again, light years ahead of any other promotion as it stands right now. If you're an up and coming MMA fighter, again, this is like the difference between going for that McKenzie consulting position or that boutique firm that is, you know, 15 people in in the back room somewhere. And that's the perception in a lot of fighter sets, it seems. Um, article that came out at the all-star by now retired Roxanne Matafiri pioneer in the sport, especially for women's MMA. She talks about signing her contract and the inside, you know, it's really about, Oh, fighter negotiations, uh, inside a, a fighter's contract, that type of stuff. But a key piece she mentions is, you know, the details didn't matter. I was going to finally fight for the UFC. I didn't care about the details. My manager would handle that. My agent would handle that. That's got to be a common thing. I would be shocked if it's not a very common thing, right? And then you have Anthony Pettis on the MMA Hour talking about, man, fighters should really test free agency more. You can build a career around these things. You can make more money. He's seen fighters take less money to try and get on Contender Series to do a flashy KO to hopefully get into the UFC. Uh, I believe the words were the fame... It's weird, like the fame 
gets in people's way. It, it's true, though. That's what happens. And we're not talking about the fame where every one of them thinks they're going to be like Anthony Pettis on a Wheaties box or a Conor McGregor or, you know, Adesanya or Jones or Rousey, right? We're talking about just the prestige of working and fighting for that organization to say, yeah, man, I fought in the UFC. I fought with the best of the best. Even though we know that there are almost certainly some amazing fighters outside of the UFC, right? We know because we've seen a lot of guys come in (laughs) from other organizations and either win titles or come close. Eddie Alvarez, prime example of this. Chandler, Michael Chandler. Yes, he's had some losses since he's come in, but he's put on some phenomenal fights and he's he's hanging right up there at, at lightweight. We've seen this happen before. But that doesn't matter, right? The X factor here is that prestige. It is the fact that I fight for the quote-unquote best organization in the world. I fight for what that man on the the street who knows almost nothing about MMA, even he has heard of this place, right? It's the same thing I'm sure that most of you, especially if you're watching this show and you're interested in business stuff, I am sure that most of you have gone to a mixer or a happy hour or a what have you. Your significant other's gotten... uh, you know, a, a family has a family member or or what have you, or your family member's gotten a new significant other that then has talked about like, oh yeah, I work for, I work, well, yeah, dude, I work for Microsoft or I work for Google. That's the new hot one, right? And for the past four or five years, well, yeah, I work for Google. I work for Apple. Oh, that must be cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Right. That There are people like that especially if you're in your young 20s just out of school, the amount of people that are like, yeah, dude, I, it's awesome. I got a job at this, blah, blah, blah. And they brag about it, right? I remember bragging about a job. Uh, I got an investment bank not long after school. And like, it was one of the, not the worst, but like one of, definitely not top tier of my work experiences but i was just so like i think i bragged about like oh i'm like wolf of wall street now you know working at a big investment bank and i'm at the time i'm not sure i could have made more because i was i was overseas but still like it was definitely prestige was a part of it right that type of feeling mma fighters are not immune And the gap in perception between UFC and these other promotions is massive, right? I know that a lot of people, especially hardcore MMA fans and journalists and media, have have pushed back on this notion in terms of the UFC is not like does not have all the best fighters, right? But we know that they have the majority of them. And honestly, I would be very curious if you you followed up on the athletics fighter survey, right? That was done forever ago and asked fighters in general what they view as where all of the best fighters are. 
I would imagine you're going to end up with 95% of them saying UFC, if not more. And that in and of itself is, is big. It's huge because it's, it becomes less about, Hey, I'm fighting for, you know, to build this career and build this brand and much more about, I'm going to be the best in the world. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a UFC fighter, right? I would love to ask up and coming guys who just turned pro or who are working in gyms right now, asking them like, you know, what are you going to be one day? And they're, oh, I would not be shocked if you go in there and all of them are like, I'm going to be UFC champ. And by guys, I mean guys and girls too. Using that as a gender neutral term. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked at all. Prestige has a lot of power. I'm not sure why it's such a big deal, uh, but it, it's a human nature thing. It really is. Um, and the UFC, again, is is it's not like, oh, I'm fighting at... It's not like, okay, I'm working at one of the big three for consulting, right? Oh, I'm a BC, I'm working at BCG, I'm working at McKenzie, I'm working at um, Bain. You know, you mentioned any three of those and it's like, oh, okay. Like that's in the consulting world, they're going to know who you are in that regard or who you're talking about rather. Um, and it's it's going to carry nearly the same amount of prestige depending on the given decade or five-year space or what have you, one may carry more than the other, right? Like Google and Apple. Like if Apple's just killing it, then, oh, I'm, you're working at Apple? Oh, cool. Uh, you're working at Google? Oh, that's cool. And then if Google's killing it, vice versa, but it's near the same prestige level. That's not the case in the MMA industry. There's the UFC and then there's everyone else. And that's that's a problem for... MMA fighters and, and promotions on signing some of these MMA fighters because even Michael Chandler, I think kind of spelled it out the best, right? That dude was, was treated like a king in Bellator. He was a champion for a long, long time. He could have re-signed with Bellator and continued to probably do very well there and, and possibly, you know, he beats... Uh, Patricio in the rematch, maybe not, but like either way, he, he probably runs most of that division. He goes down as a Bellator legend, but he said he wanted to, you know, test himself. And, and why are you testing yourself? Well, oh, you didn't get tested enough, which means that, oh, there are harder tests somewhere else, which means perception wise, the UFC has better fighters. And in his case, I think, you know, that's probably true. I think the UFC has the best of the best in lightweight. And so it makes sense. But even if it didn't at the time, right, that that perception is still there. And it's going to be super hard to change it. Even if he and Chandler and Patricio were the two best lightweights in the world. And let's say we ran, we're in, we're in a universe where there's cross promotional fights and those two just run the gamut on everybody and, and they make it look easy. I still think 
Chandler would have jumped ship just because of the way things are perceived as right now. If they're the two best and the perception is that Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje and Habib are better, they're going to go. They're going to go try and fight those guys. I mean, heck, if you're an MMA fighter, that's part of competition and the drive to be the best is part of your core motivation, I would assume, into getting punched in the face, <laughs> right? So when we talk about, you know, Dana White contender series contracts being 5K, 5K, when we talk about, you know, fighter pay in general and how if you have a bigger name, you can go to some of these other places, why Kayla Harrison was even considering going to the UFC when she's making crazy money in the PFL. It's not always about money, right? Just like regular work. Now I know for some of you it is, and, and I get it. I'm not, I'm not downplaying the impact of money, but it's not about always about money for some people. And this is a prime example of that. And as long as the UFC is seen so far ahead of every other promotion, prestige is always going to play an important X factor in getting prime fighters signed, right? When you're older, when you're a Pettis or a McDonald and you've kind of been there, done that, you've either lost the belt or had the chance to win a belt uh, and then kind of ran the gamut of promotions, then yeah, sure. You're, you've got a name. You're looking to kind of just make as much money as you can and still fight and be competitive, maybe win a title at a different promotion, all that stuff, then yeah, you're going to go out and test it. But if you're an up-and-coming prime prospect and you really feel like you're the best, I feel like you're almost certainly going to do everything you can to get in the UFC. Because why would you go to another promotion, win the belt, right? Feel like you're amazing only to then have everyone else be like, well, yeah, he's great, but he's not quite. I mean, look at AJ McKee, right? When we thought AJ McKee, I mean, at least a lot of us thought that AJ McKee was unstoppable, undefeated, just ran through everybody. We hadn't seen that happen in Bellator in quite some time. I mean, destroyed Pitbull. Even he said like, well, yeah, I might have to go, you know, show Volkanovsky what's up. We should do a cross promotional fight. Still, still talking about fighters and other promotions, in the UFC, it, he wasn't he wasn't going over and saying, "Yeah, I might have to go fight a Todd Schultz or you know Brandon like you Brandon Laughlin." No, that's not how it works. And when we talk about this stuff, prestige has to be again in the back of your mind when we talk about fighter negotiations. If you got head scratching, like why would they accept this or why would they go here? That's part of it. But even us as as fans of the sport and journalists, right? We get sucked into it too sometimes. You go on a long diatribe about Nunez losing to Pena, winning, and all of a sudden she's the goat again when Cyborg never got a rematch, and it's hard to you know reconcile some of that stuff. But it is easy to slip into the UFC is the best of the best, the most prestigious organization, all this other stuff. When in reality... What might be better for business from fighters would be if they tested more free agency, if they listened to Anthony Pettis or they took a word of caution from Roxanne's experience. Will that actually happen? I doubt it. You need an organization to really get to that level or near that level of the UFC 
that they could be viewed as, oh, okay, that's pretty prestigious. And that's probably why boxing is such a big substitute threat right now. It's because that's a space where boxing, you know, you can go fight some of these guys in boxing and still get a lot of eyes on you and still have it be kind of, you know, a prestige thing. It's a different sport, different area, right? So it is what it is. But again, prestige is a critically important X factor in every fighter negotiation, fighter contract, and every fighter pay discussion that we have. All right, well, that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Appreciate everybody for listening and watching. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the like, subscribe, bell notification. If you're listening on Anchor, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, what have you, always appreciate it. Appreciate the love. And until next time, y'all, get money.